So this is the third week. So moving geographically, this is the one on the library. So it kind of connects though with the, at least I tried to, with the church and then also into the dining room next week for some similar reasons. But the way that the library connects with the church is that it is in many ways sort of the liturgy, especially in the Benedictine rule, is the starting point of study. Um, it's the end, sort of the end point. Like, that's the reason why the Eucharist is the source and summit. Like, learning about God is the ultimate end, um, pursuit of truth. But it's also the liturgy is the starting point. Um, and in particular, particularly, a little more coffee there. Wake the tongue up. Um, ah, yeah. That I was going to say, the rule of Benedict does not actually talk a ton about the Mass. Um, and the reason why, like, it makes a few references. Like, one of the things I'll talk about in a little bit is what's called the table readings. That the guy that's doing the readings during the meals, it says that in case, like, the Eucharistic, because of the Eucharistic fast, which used to be really long, and they haven't eaten since then, like, he's to get a little snack before he reads. So it makes a reference that, okay, he was, they were going to Mass, but the, the rule of Benedict doesn't talk tons about the, the, the Mass. And part of the reason why was it was not the norm in monasteries back then that they would have a bunch of priests. And actually, some of the monasteries, they didn't necessarily have a monk that was a priest, and so one would have to come every once in a while to be able to um, give them the sacraments. And part of that is an education thing, etc., that there's not a requirement that you had to be super well-educated in order to become a brother. Um, and actually, even historically, that most people don't even think that St. Benedict was a priest, um, that he was probably a lay brother. But anyway, that's the side note. But the So when I talk about coming from the liturgy, that ultimately, yes, the study, we're, I mean, we all know that you're receiving the, the gospel in the mass. Um, but what I want to talk about, though, is the liturgy of the hours as the starting point of study, um, because that is what the, a large portion of the Benedictine rule is about, praying the liturgy of the hours. And so in particular, there you go, the tongue's starting to wake up. Um, sorry, the board's terrible. There's an adage in schools that teachers are supposed to just beg, borrow, or steal to get whatever supplies you want. So some teacher in the school here stole my nice whiteboard and replaced it with this thing. Um, so I'm not sure which. But anyway, I guess I could go through the school and probably find it. But that's all right. So, um, but the starting point of study, it, usually a good place is with the concept of Lectio Divina, or the close reading of the scriptures. And so basically that's a good starting point of all study is the scriptures. And actually a good example of that notion is not in the Benedictine rule, but in the, um, the rule of St. or the order of St. Dominic, the order of preachers that come along a lot later that the whole notion of study, the Dominicans really expanded upon it in a way that makes a lot sense for lay people but I in particular I was thinking of the life of Saint 
Dominic, that he starts this rule that a pillar of their order is study, the pursuit of truth, etc. But the starting point always for him was the scriptures. And there's a reason why that what Dominic always carried around with him at all times was the Gospel of Matthew and the Epistles of Paul. And he would constantly read them both every day, constantly going through it one after, over and over and over. So starting point of study, like I said, is the slow prayerful reading of Scripture. And I'll explain how that's done in a second in a little more detail. But the, well, where do you start with knowing what Scripture to even read? So you're going to say you're wanting to do Lectio Divina. You ha how do you pick what Scripture to do? And that's why I say an easy place is to start with the liturgy. Um, start with the readings of the Mass or and or every day in the Liturgy of the Hours that one of the offices is called the Office of the Readings. And the nice thing about it is the church provides you with a little chunk of reading um, for being able to read from the scriptures. And then they also give you a little chunk from the church fathers. Um, and it's a great place to start with spiritual reading and study. Um, and the term Lectio Divina simply re refers to, like I said, a slow, prayerful reading, especially of scripture. Now, um, there's multiple steps in doing Lectio Divina, and they're pretty simple and straightforward. The first is just read the scripture slowly. Um, that it pick, don't ever pick too big of a chunk. And that's always the temptation to read the Bible. It's like, well, I got to get through the Bible in a year, so I got to get through six chapters right now. Um, when you don't have to get through it in a year, it's better to, I mean, it's good to know the whole story, but it's better to prayerfully go through it than necessarily to speed through it. Um, and so you don't have to finish the whole chapter. You don't have to finish any, there's no timeline. Um, read slowly. So that's the first thing is read slowly. And if you have to read, the chunk that you pick twice, read it twice. Um, but then the second part is remember when we talked about the whole concept of in prayer of um, meditation, that meditation isn't sit the emptying of the mind for the sake of nothingness like in Eastern mysticism. It is the active engagement of the intellect. So engage the intellect, think about what you're reading about. Like, and that's when Sometimes it can be useful to have some notes to help spur the, the intellect. Sometimes we can get a little too caught up in the notes. Like you have the Bible encyclopedia and you're like, oh, well, that's interesting. So this, let me get that map out. And then you, it becomes an academic exercise, um, which is a great thing too. Like studying the Bible for, um, for intellectual reasons is um, good too. But thinking about it would be... Um, a good example is when you're reading about John the Baptist and you're reading the short part and it talks about how he, um, how he, the clothes he wore and the diet of the locusts and the honey, like thinking about it would be like to go like, oh yeah, that's, why do they include those details? Oh, be, oh yeah, because Elijah um, had those same details describing him. So he's a new Elijah. There you're engaging the intellect um, on it. And then the third part is... Just talk to God about it. That, I think it was Teresa of Avila that said that prayer is simply conversation with God. Well, at his basic sense. So, talk to God about 
what you're reading. Like, I think it's all not that hard to do those three things, um, and we can all do it. And then the fourth part is not really on us, is that is sometimes God talks back. Um, so sometimes, we talked about before, that meditation is the work we do, and contemplation is the work God does. That sometimes, so he, just, he will talk back and inspire you, etc. And then sometimes people will put a fifth of, like, try to come up with, Hey, a resolution for yourself. Sometimes the resolution doesn't come. That's okay. Um, but keep it simple. I'm sure Deacon John could say a lot more about this because you're elected a Vena man. <laughs> I, I would just, the only thing I would add is on the, the second part, the print part, you're right because it can become an academic. But important to do the academic separate from this so that when you are thinking you can make that connection like you, you, you talked about the connection between John the Baptist and Elijah you're not going to make that connection unless you know scripture. That's a great point yeah and actually and that would be where the when I say go through the Bible, the Bible in a year thing, it is important to know the structure of what comes before to be able to go through the whole Bible, the context and all those things in order to be able to make connections. That's a great point, that you do need the academic to support. Um, it's kind of like, I don't know, I used to teach history and um, the importance of knowing basic geography was always uh, very important. And the phrase is geography is the handmaid of history because... It's kind of hard to know what's going on if you don't know even the, the basic, well, where's the context of where it is, what the culture's like, all those things. So that's a, a great point. Were you going to add something? I was just going to say that um, I write, and it seems like that's so helpful to me, to write what I'm reading in the scripture and then thinking, and then somehow if the contemplation it's there, it comes out in what I write, and it's just a prayer. Yeah, in the writing, so I would say, cause there's, it's funny how people's brains work so differently. My wife and I were talking about that, because she thinks in words, and I think in pictures. So, um, so I think she, she writes, too, but if I was to try to write, like, it would just kill the prayer. Like I, um, because I don't think in words, I think in pictures. Um, so, but that's an interesting point. Um, so, Anyway, so this is the starting point, but it's also interesting that there's a reason why that reading the scriptures is not all that we do. Um, it's like the high point, but it's also not all that we're called to do when it comes to study. And um, I mean, and this has actually always been a an argument within the church going back to the very early church. Um, when you had some of the church fathers, what was the famous phrase? The what is Athens to do with Jerusalem? Where, um, and actually I have some non-Catholic friends who, it's funny how non-Catholics sometimes like to go back and rehash things that have been decided over thousands of years. And anyway, he's trying to make the same argument like, well, should we really ever be reading anything other than the scriptures? And the church has always answered, yes. Um, and the reason why is at the heart of study ultimately is the pursuit of truth um that it's also interesting that there is the understanding within this that 
ultimately, when we get to heaven, hopefully, um, all truth will be revealed and we'll finally arrive at the truth. And it's not a futile pursuit, but it's also a recognition that there's not a requirement while here on earth to necessarily grasp all truth. That there's, um, and actually what I thought of is in the Benedictine rule, that the requirement for becoming a um, receiving entrance is there is you have to be seeking after God. There's not a requirement that you have to have found him um, yet or that you have to be a, a great Catholic or anything like that, but you have to like genuinely be wanting um, to seek after God. And actually, and I was listening to a talk recently and they made the, the same analogy saying that even within marriage that the vow, you're not ultimately making a vow to love the other person at all times. You're making a vow to seek to love the other person at all times. That it, recognizing that you're going to fall short um, a lot. So likewise, we're called to seek to pursue the truth um, here on earth. Now, um, and so that's why we start with scripture because we know that revelation, God revealing the truth, um, is the high, high point of that truth. But there's all, that's not the only place that truth is necessarily um, to be found. And so it was um, St. Justin Martyr that he talked about when that question was Athens to do with Jerusalem, like Greek philosophy and um, versus scripture, etc. that he said that there was in the, the wisdom of the pagans, he called them little spermata of truth, like little seeds of truth. And so the, um, so it is the, one of the things that we can do as right discerning Christians is recognize that, hey, within literature, within, I was going to say even movies, etc., that there can be like little seeds of truth and we're called to discern the true things and as opposed to the false things. And so that's the reason why you go from there into like study also being a well-rounded person includes having a good knowledge of history, a good knowledge of literature, poetry, um, the, you, you name it, it's about become a well-rounded human being is a large portion of this. And this is a reason why out of the high point of the Middle Ages, when you had the, the intellectual sort of high point of Christendom, so think of the rise of universities in Europe in the 12th or the 13th century into the 1300s, you had these great intellectuals like St. Um, Albert the Great and Thomas Aquinas and St. Bonaventure. And it was out of that context that you had the rise of the Renaissance and the whole concept of even of humanism, of not of putting God in place of man, but understanding like, hey, we can, when you pursue truth to its fullest in all aspects of life, that it actually ends up glorifying God. Um, so, yeah. Um, so I would say, so you start there and then, but it doesn't mean that we stay there. And it says, you see this even within the rule of Benedict that one of the primary places of study within the rule of Benedict is in, um, a concept of called table readings. 
And they put a whole big chunk, or Benedict did, in the rule about the whole notion of table readings. And what table readings are, if you ever go to a Benedictine monastery, is there's certain parts of the rule that they have sort of are not necessarily followed nowadays because of cultural context that they just, there's no practical way nor able to do certain things. But table readings are very stringently followed. And the way it works is during all the meals, the basically all of the brothers and the monks that they all sit in silence. And you eat in total silence. You need something passed. You have to make some sort of sign, something to stay silent because one of the monks' job is to read out loud um, and for everyone to listen during that meal. And when you see, well, what are the recommendations for what's to be read um, and that you start to see the understanding of where truth is to be found, etc., because they're not required to just read from scripture at meals, that it's an opportunity to actually expand the, the intellect the, um, of those who are listening. So they'll read, I mean, I've been, I was going to say, I've been in monasteries a few different times, and I, I just, from my own experience, I've had, there was like a history of like the Roman Empire that they were reading from one time. I was at one, they were reading from like a history of the Mayflower. Um, then another, they were reading from a book on J.R.R. Tolkien. Um, then they would read also, there's another time from um, an encyclical that had come out from the Pope. Um, so you get a whole sort of range of what's being read. And part of that is too, understanding that when we talked about different intellects, some people thinking in words, some think people in pictures, that some of us are naturally going to be um, drawn to study of different things. Um, so that's one of the reasons they do that. But it's also because there's truth to be found in a lot of different stuff. And this is an important distinguish is two things that I want to keep coming back to that have been errors of the last 50 years, is that first is when I say we're called to seek the truth, is the first error is the idea, well, like always just constantly be on a journey because there's no destination. Like, no, we are called to constantly seek the truth in humility, recognizing we're not there yet, um, but there is an actual destination. There is an actual truth. Um, and so it's not that it's relativistic at all. It's just being humble that we haven't gotten there yet. And then... Um, Oh, man, I forgot what the second thing was. All right, Bob, you can make your point. I remember the second thing. But just to kind of take that thought a little further, you know, if, as you said, the Benedictines kind of focused on, uh, say, the Liturgy of the Hours, and then the Dominicans with Thomas and the Thomists kind of bringing in Greek philosophy and marrying that to uh, Scripture. But then you get to the Jesuits, and they're actively encouraged to get degrees in math and science and become secular teachers of those things. Yet you kind of tend to see the Jesuits are the first to kind of veer off the course a little bit and kind of uh, get crosswise with the magisterium. 
So there's some there's something to be said in my mind about balance there, some high ground. Actually that ties in exactly with what my point was and help me remember it. Um, and that was that when we talk about there being the seeds of truth and things too, it's also important to there's that especially the last fifty years, and it goes back to that same relativism sort of sneaking in a naivete sometimes to say, well, like, oh, there's truth in all these things. We should just be sort of open to everything. And recognizing, no, you, there has to be a great discernment within it, recognizing that there's true things, but then there's also very untrue things, and there's diabolical ideas, and as well as uh, things that are actually uplifting, etc. And in particular, the church has always said the place to be most wary of bad ideas, one of the places to be most wary of bad ideas, and I think of a letter written by then Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger basically on the heirs of the East, meaning like Eastern mysticism is one of the most dangerous intellectual um, like counterfeits of the Christian life. And um, so there, and I mean, so I think the good example of going that way and the dangers of it was um, Thomas Merton, who was one of the better intellectuals of the church and ended up, what's the being electrocuted in a bathtub in Bangkok when he should be uh, at his monastery following the rule. But because of the, anyway, not discerning like the heirs of Eastern mysticism. And so anyway, there's a gr great letter on that particular topic. Um, yeah. And TJ, this uh, whole topic of pursuing the truth also has a strong tie to, uh, to another problem that's occurred over the past several decades, which is a, which is an argument by secular materialists that the brain is nothing but a kind of computer that we just don't fully understand. But, but I don't know of anybody that is arrogant enough to say that they're aware of a computing technology that's interested in seeking the truth. The human, as John Paul Gray said, is infused with a desire to seek the truth by God. But I don't know of any computer that has an interest in seeking the truth. The computer might be able to calculate something very accurately, whatever, but that's a, a subtle but pretty important. That's a very important distinction. Um, yeah, there's, there's very like teleological, the argument of actually pursuit of an end. Yeah. What was the name of that um, document by? I can't remember. Cardinal Ratzinger. But if you just Google like Cardinal Ratzinger, Eastern philosophy or Easter, it, it, um, it comes up. The same thing on the Regensburg address with regard to uh, Islam. Yeah, and I don't know if his... Yeah, and this is when he was the prefect for the Congregation of Doctrine of the Faith. Like, so it came from the CDF, which we can't say anymore because they just read, they um, organized the Curia. So now I don't even remember what it's called. It's like the Dicastery of... Yeah, something. Um, yeah, keep it simple. All right. Now, the other thing to remember about study two is, and this is, I think, where the Dominicans are helpful for lay people, is the idea of study as charity. Meaning, you're not, the reason why we're pursuing the truth is yes, because we love God and we want to know more about Him and to grow closer union with Him, but also because, as lay people especially, it's also should be fundamentally evangelistic. Um, and that when you look at the works of charity within the works of mercy within the church, that the church, we always distinguish 
between the corporal works of mercy and the spiritual works of mercy. And this is that one of those both ands that we talked about, I think it was two weeks ago, about how the, the physical world is good, but the spiritual world is better, but the physical world is good, but the spiritual work is better. So as such, we say the, the corporal works of mercy are necessary. I mean, the first deacons were established in the church in or, because the corporal works of mercy were being neglected. Um, but the spiritual works of mercy, we say, are sort of the high point of the practice of charity, a practice of love. And as such, when you actually look at, well, what are the spiritual works of mercy, that one of the most important ones is instructing the ignorant. Um, that it is a work of mercy, a work of charity, of the highest love to be able to instruct those that are ignorant. So the first reason you sh we should be studying and knowing the faith better is so that we can be instructing others and helping them to come to know and love God more. Um, so that's why um, I was going to say there's a, there's a Dominican priest, A.G. Sertelange. He was French, so you just, I don't know how to pronounce French things. You just leave off the end and go, oh, so Sertelange. All right. That, um, so, but he had a, a great book called The Intellectual Life, where he talked about how all of us are called to the intellectual life. We're not all called to be intellectuals, but we all are made with a rational intellect and called to pursue the truth. So we're all called, therefore, to the intellectual life to a certain extent, at least the pursuit of it. Um, and one of the main points that he makes, though, is that when we're practicing the intellectual life is to keep it practical in that do it for other people um, so that it doesn't become merely self-serving and about... Um, feeling good about how intellectual you are and to keep pride from working it. So he even makes a point that when you study something, um, so you're going to study a book on, I don't know, pick up a Scott Hahn book, etc. that think about the fact of a specific person that you're going to read that for. Um, so that how that can really help ground in the, the this is um, an act of charity that I'm going to... Um, learn this. And this is why even the, the scripture talking about being ready to give a, a reason for the hope that's within you, that it's not being able to, I mean, the whole con, this is where I think apologetics gets backwards sometimes, is a lot of us will think about apologetics as a way to like one up the, the person who's asking the questions. So they, the Protestant will ask about, hey, where's that found in scripture? And it's like, it's right here, loser. Um, and <laughs> So then you can feel good about yourself afterwards. But that's not the point. The whole point is to actually be able to um, be winsome in the spreading of the gospel and to help others to pursue the truth better, to instruct the ignorant. Um, and we all know that it's better to instruct in a winsome manner than to, like, memorize this, whack. Um, so anyway, so thinking about others is important. Um, and recognizing that the, the, the point of the study is, yes, to come to know, love God better, but then to help others come and know and love God better. Um, yeah. You know, it seems like it's, it's kind of two phases to it. It's not only learn something to bring it 
to somebody, but it's also in, in, in that process of reading and understanding the material to begin with, you become more sensitive to the needs of others, to the need to be there for others, right? And then all of a sudden it's like, whoa, this could be pretty important for you know, marriage or whatever. But that first step of just acquiring that view outside of yourself and, and being, becoming maybe a little more sensitive. Yeah. There's, there's a tie to what you said last week about humility. You spoke about humility a bunch. And really, uh, I know as having been a teacher and professor that, to Tony's point, uh, I used to think that I understood semiconductor device physics, but I realized that I didn't until I was about two-thirds of the way of teaching a course in it. And it's kind of like, whoa, okay? <laughs> I'm teaching this course, but actually there's a lot of this that I don't really get, you know? Oh, yeah. A little humbling experience. No, and it's also very embarrassing when you ever go back, at least myself, of thinking of things that you taught in the past and realize that you, like, were completely wrong. But you just – especially when I started teaching, I had six different classes that were six separate preps. And so you can only prep, like, two classes. That, so you just make it up the rest of the time. <laughs> and – but then you go back and you realize, like, whoa, man, some of those things I taught was not only wrong, but, like, the exact opposite was actually true. But, oh, well. Um, so another interesting thing about the concept of the table readings that I was found very affirming is that you also see very early on it's a recognition that, hey, some people learn better audibly than others reading, etc. And as someone who loves audiobooks, books, um, has a much quicker way to get through books, etc. Um, I found that very affirming. Um, but it's also, uh, audio, I was gonna say, audio listening, audio books is not necessarily second rate to actually reading books um, either. And that the, um, this word was meant to be spoken. Um, and actually this was really interesting is that when the printing press came out, that there was all sorts of stuff written about how it was the death of the intellectual life and the death of um, thinking because people no longer were going to have to listen to what was being said. Um, they were no longer going to have to memorize things, um, but rather that you're going to have to be able to write it all down. It's kind of like the idea with the phone now. Like you don't have to remember details because you can just look it up um, at all times. Like, oh, what was that guy's name? Um, and so you don't have to hold the things in your memory. So anyway, that's an interesting thing to think about even before actual books. When you, I mean, go back to Plate, to um, Homer, and is the recitation of entire uh, books that people would hold in their, their intellect. But it's also, the, the spoken word too is important. It made me think of, there was a good book by the priest Romano Guardini, um, another 20th century priest, another friend of Pope Benedict, but it's called um, Preparing Yourself for Mass. And one of the things that, the point that he makes that I always have thought about is that he says that you should not follow a long reading while the gospel is being proclaimed. Um, and because of the fact, he says, that the gospel is meant to be heard, um, not just read. Um, and you, the human brain can't do both at the same time. So you read it beforehand is what he says so that you know it, but then listen to it at the time. I go back and forth on what I do. I just thought it was an interesting point. Yeah. I had uh, listened 
talk one time, and it was interesting. I can't remember which one of the saints it was, but um, people thought he was really strange because he would read without talking. Because back in the day, when you read, you would speak the words that you that you read um, rather than just reading them silently which today we would think someone was really weird if they were reading out loud you know, like what's wrong you know? that's an interesting point yeah the cultural change on that yeah but another aspect about the audio part that's i think from the table readings too is there is something communal about that brings you together when you listen to something together um and actually i think about this when I still remember when I was a kid being on a mountain trip in a cabin. I don't even, probably like 11 or something like that. And I remember my dad, because there was no TV or anything, so he read from Jurassic Park. Um, which was, I remember being like fascinated by the book Jurassic Park. Um, to this, I mean, that was a long time ago, but it really made the, like the experience of hearing the book read out loud. And that's, there was nothing else to do. Um, and I, so I think that's part of the reason of within mass of listening is it's like, no, we're all in it together um, because the communal aspect of the faith is an extremely important one that you especially see within the Benedictine rule that, yes, like we're all going to stand before God in judgment. And actually you see this within the judgment. There's two judgments. There's the general judgment, which is like communal, and the personal judgment, which is individual. Um, and likewise, you see this within the Benedictine rule that one of the, the rules in there is that when a monk is being reprimanded for something, you're not allowed to stand up for him. Um, like everyone has to stand up for themselves. So recognizing that we all stand in judgment by ourselves, we're ultimately responsible for our own actions, etc. But then the entirety of the rest of like the rule is based around communal life, meaning that, yes, you are your brother's keeper. We're all in it together um, and that we're all trying to um, ultimately help each other get to heaven. And so it's those, those two aspects. So I think that shared experience of the, the reading is important. But also you see within um, the intellectual life of pursuit of truth is fundamental to also recognize that it is a communal pursuit, meaning that there's no such thing as lone intellectuals. Um, and this is something you see historically that there's a reason why intellectual movements historically always happen in like groups because the, the one guy by himself, like on the desert island with a pile of books, is only going to be able to think so deeply about things and get so far. Like you put five guys together and with the same materials that are able to actually discuss it and dive deeply into it, and the level of what comes out is much higher. Yeah, so like I said, it comes with, and it has to be um, um, thought about, like meaning that it has to be intentional. That's the word I'm looking for. That the communal pursuit has to be intentional of intellectual um, communities, because it's easy, especially, um, I think, I don't know if it's not to pick on men, but I don't know if it's natural first and foremost natural that men get together. Like if you're not intentional about talking about interesting things, you're just gonna talk about football and, and beer, and that's okay. Football and beer are great. Actually, this is one of my 
views of charity is I think every um, gentleman is called to have a basic understanding of the going-ons of football because you need to be able to have something that you could converse with everybody on. Um, and that's sort of the, the, the lingua franca of, of the country. But anyway, but you have to actually be, be intentional about pursuing of intellectual things. Um, not, it just doesn't happen on its own. Um, but it has to, like I said, it's a communal effort. And, but the last thing I'm going to say, trying to respect time, is that the table readings for moving into next week when we talk about the dining room, that it does, as someone who, an aspiring, say, amateur chef, I find it a little insulting, the idea of, like, listening to an intellectual work while you're eating, because it makes me think of, there's a quote by, um, it was G.K. Chesterton that said, listening to music during meals is an insult to both the musician and the chef. So, um, so like, but that's for another time. A lot of people, and just in the culture at large, don't realize is that we don't have originals of any of the great works of antiquity. That the oldest, I think, book that we have, apart from the Bible, is a copy of the Republic that was copied in around 880. That's like the oldest existing book. So, um, thinking about that very fact that a large portion of what they would do during work during the day was not just copying scripture, because the oldest copy we have of scripture is from around 400 AD. So, the, the fact we even have the Bible, it was, well, you know this, it's the copying down, but they didn't just copy down the Bible. It was all the great works of antiquity, too. That, that's why we have them. Um, there are some of them that we have because the Muslims did it, but for the most part, it's because the monks. But what most people don't realize that when we say the Muslims did it, it wasn't really the, I was going to say, I say that with a caveat, that most of the heavy lifting of the intellectual world in the Muslim world was done by um, Eastern Rite Catholics. But, anyway. Well, and it didn't, they didn't even exist until centuries after monks were already... Yeah, exactly. All so but, for the most part, it would be the Maronites and the Melkites and stuff that were the ones in the East. You know, the Jesuits are, were known as the astronomers of the Middle Ages and the Renaissance. Uh, I forget the order. It was another order. They were the geologists. I mean, so they are, to Tony's point, there's a great book called How the Western, How the Catholic Church Saved Western Civilization. Oh, yeah. That is a good book. Which summarizes all of those, all those different monasteries. If it weren't for them, forget it. All right. Anyone have anything else to add before we close in prayer? All right, so next week, food and hospitality. It'll be enjoyable. No, it's still Lent. We'll bring some, I'll bring some stale bread. All right. All right. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen. God, our Father, you sent your Son into the world to be its true light. Pour out the Holy Spirit he promised us to sow the truth in men's hearts and awaken them the obedience of faith. May all men be born again to new life and baptism, and so enter the fellowship of your one holy church through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. amen. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen.